It's Friday, August 30th, 2013. Welcome to episode 18 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. I'm Jeff Eaton, digital strategist at Lullabot, and your host for Insert Content Here. Uh, every couple of weeks, we talk to people in the trenches of digital publishing and content strategy about the cool projects they're working on and the stuff that they're learning. And this week, we are lucky enough to have Andrea Phillips, the award-winning game designer, writer, interaction designer. Um, she's the author of A Creator's Guide to Transmedia Storytelling, and uh, she's doing some really, really cool and interesting projects these days, and uh, we're going to get a chance to talk to her. So welcome to the show, and thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so humor me. Uh, for, for the folks who are listening, um, what is transmedia storytelling? The sort of academic definition is that transmedia storytelling is the art of telling a single cohesive story through multiple media at the same time where each each medium is making a unique contribution to the whole. Um, that, that's kind of impenetrable if you don't already know what you're talking about, though. So I, I've been describing it as a story that you tell like a mosaic, where a photo mosaic even, where each individual tile may have something on it. Um, but if you step back and see all of them, you see something sort of different and more magnificent. I know in the in like the digital publishing world, there's been a lot of talk about um, cross-platform, cross-device, you know, cross-channel publishing. And I think there's been a lot of emphasis on the idea of different kinds of content going and living in lots of places. But it, it, I think the the idea of all of these independent pieces telling a single cohesive story not just being duplicated and you know being different angles onto something you know that that's a really interesting twist mm -hmm. who's building these kinds of projects what kind of stuff you know comes out in in transmedia there are a couple of different approaches right now um the most widely known is of course the hollywood transmedia approach um marketing budgets in particular for entertainment properties like oh, District 9 or HBO Game of Thrones, will pull together something. Um, actually, Hunger Games has a, a new campaign going just right now, even as we speak. Oh, it's the series of fashion blogs, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's all of this sort of fashion stuff, and there are fashion billboards going on. And the idea is to immerse the, the audience in the feeling of being in that story world. And what you're getting isn't isn't a, a plot point really from these other media, but you're getting that sense of immersion and world building that might otherwise happen on screen or on the page. Um, and it, it kind of lightens the load of, of heavy lifting that the core media have to do to get you up to speed. Yeah. I, I remember like quite a few years back when the, I think it was the matrix reloaded. There was a game that came out mm -hmm. uh, that had a bunch of cut scenes that were not, they, they weren't scenes from the movie, but they were still like, you know, they were the same raw material, same actors yes, yes, yes. and everything. And you actually got certain twists and additional chunks of scenes that weren't in the film, but revealed a little more of the backstory. Absolutely. The way, the way I've heard it described best is it's, it's like a character walks off screen on the film and then on screen in the, the graphic novel. Um, 
it's sort of a, a continuous story and which pieces of the story you see depend on which lens you're looking through at the time, which, I mean, whether you're playing the game, whether you're looking at the comics, whether you're watching the movie. Um, and, and the result is that you wind up with a more complex story and a more complex understanding of the story. Even even Star Wars has been doing this kind of thing for for forever for as long as anybody uh, because you have that original series of, of movies but there's also this sort of extended canon that takes place in uh, well in in the clone wars for example but also in those books and if you really truly want to follow the story let's say of princess leia and han solo and their sort of romance you watch it unfold in the movies to begin with. But if you want to see how that pays off and where it ends up, you have to read the books. That's the only way to find out. Um, and for, for those of you who may be wondering, they totally get married and have twin babies and it's awesome. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. Um, and in your book, you talk about like the East coast, West coast split mm -hmm. in transmedia, mm -hmm. which I, I find awesome because it implies like transmedia rap battles. Um, <laughs> but the, the approach that you were just describing sounds like what you described as like the West Coast yes, transmedia yes, school. Yes. What, what's, what's the flip side of that coin? There's also a sort of gritty indie approach, which involves uh, lower budgets, fewer fewer marketing resources. The idea isn't to do something splashy that's promoting uh, a sort of core uh, for sale experience like a movie or, or even a television show. The idea is that all of this transmedia stuff together is the story in, in its own right. Um, and I mean, this is, this isn't really uh, an exact science. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a joke more than anything else, but there's a, a tradition among filmmakers, for example, now to make short films that have, uh, sort of live events associated with them. And so the audience isn't just coming to see a film they're They're coming to participate in uh, an actual experience. Um, Mark Harris has done a project called the lost children. And when you go to see a, a viewing of the film, you actually kind of get guided through an experience. That's like a, a cult indoctrination almost. Oh yeah. I, yeah, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I was just reading about that. And then Yomi Ayani has done things really, really intense things where you kind of walk into that horrifying, well, to me horrifying, but I'm kind of like that, that, that really creepy scene from eyes wide shut where, where there's all of this really intense stuff going on around you. So it's, it's, it's a matter of providing an intensity of experience that you can't really provide in, in non-interactive media. It's making things more interactive, making the story adapt and flex to whatever it is the audience is doing as well. It reminds me a lot of uh, an old, old game, uh, Majestic. I think yes. it was by Electronic Arts. And I, all, I always thought that was such a fascinating example, but it, I, it was definitely... Um, I think it might have been ahead of its time. It really, really was. The, the tagline for Majestic was the game that plays you. And it was ahead of its time and in two sort of different ways. One of them was that connectivity was a lot more expensive than, than it is now. Uh, now, if you want to make a game that's going to make a phone call to somebody, it's fairly technically cheap and, and simple to work out how to do that. I mean, I've done it myself for a tiny little indie project. It's not it's not a big deal. But at the time, having that sort of auto dial on a timer hooked up to a login was a really big technical deal. They had to gate content really heavily because it, it was hard to engineer something like this. 
at the time. And, and Majestic did a whole lot of that too. It, it was really like you would sign did. up and you got phone calls and emails and instant mm-hmm. message. You know, like characters from the game would be instant messaging you if you signed on yeah. and stuff like that. Now the the official story is that uh, they they pulled the plug on it in response to nine eleven. Uh, at which point, creepy, shadowy conspiracies no longer seemed like quite the thing to do. That's fair. Um, but I think they're also fairly open of, about the fact that player numbers were not what they needed to be in order to pay off the incredible investment in technology required to make that game. Um, and this is sort of one of my my warnings about transmedia development in general. If, if something requires you to do a really, really big technology build in order to, to do your, your vision, you probably want to think about that really hard. I, I have not yet seen uh, a project that required an enormous technology build that, that ultimately paid off. I mean, if you're talking about a, a flash site, that's one thing, you know, a really great flash site. But if you're talking about building a whole new platform. Like setting up new infrastructure. Setting up and... new infrastructure. Um, the, the most recent tale in, in that front is um, Fourth Wall Studios, which um, was, was developing rides. And I, I'm not sure if it's officially still under development or not. I mean, the, the studio still exists, but the story team for it has been gutted and the, the company has definitely undergone a tremendous change in direction. Um, and they were they were doing platforms. I, I'm not a believer in transmedia platforms as a winning strategy. I, I think it's much better to think about what resources you already have available and what story you want to tell and find a way to make it work. What kind of assets are involved in, in a transmedia project? What is the stuff to be managed? Um, you know, how, how do you begin breaking that stuff down? Every project is different. One of the things that I, I say about transmedia development is that the structure of the story and how you're going to tell the story is as much a point of creativity as the story itself and how people will, will interact with it. Um, so it's it's not just about you know, how you use Twitter. It's whether you use Twitter, uh, whether you use Tumblr. I mean, social media is, is of course, free and really, really effective uh, when when you use it the right way, but at the same time, you know, blogging is free or really inexpensive, and you can do amazing narrative things just with those things, with email accounts on on Gmail and whatnot. So, so you can create a really intense experience for somebody, uh, even for a, a pretty big audience, just with free internet resources. Uh, assuming assuming that you're doing it sort of on your own and you're volunteering your own labor. When you start talking about paying people, it becomes a little more expensive, of course. One of the things that was interesting about Majestic at the time that it rolled out um, was that the number of different channels that were out there that could be leveraged that way, mm-hmm. you know, there, there were far fewer. You know, you, you would talk about like what, you know, email yeah. and, you know, chat rooms and, and uh, instant messages and phone calls. And I mean, what, faxes? Facebook hadn't been invented. And that was around the time when seeing a streaming video online was an incredible, amazing thing. If you can, if you can remember, it was amazing at the time. Well, yeah, that was 2000. That's like years mm-hmm. before YouTube existed. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I can, I can, I can definitely imagine that we, that would involve a whole lot of infrastructure bootstrapping. They, they, they needed the internet, and the internet wasn't quite there for them yet. Now, I think, unfortunately, that also limited the audience. The number of people who would be really into something like that on a, on a sort of casual basis are larger now because we have our communication tools with us all the time. Yeah, and 
you're less likely to want to play a weird conspiracy thing and get phone calls to your house if your kid might pick up the phone. Whereas now, nobody answers your phone but you anymore. You mentioned this idea of, you know, wh where the expenses lie and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Like, what, what kind of models are creators using to fund these projects? I know you just finished a really successful Kickstarter project. <laughs> my little goofy, my little goofy pirate story. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of different models, and I, I think... We haven't really explored everything that's that's possible yet. So unfortunately, I say unfortunately, meanwhile, I, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. Uh, a lot of money comes from marketing budgets, not just entertainment, but for sort of other brands that want to provide an interesting experience for people so that uh, so that people think of them more kindly, essentially. Um, and you've seen, you know, Levi Jeans has made transmedia experience. Audi has. You've seen Covet, the Sarah Jessica Parker perfume. Really, really interesting projects in, in many cases. Uh, but marketing is, unfortunately, usually the splashiest, most fantastic stuff. Um, but it's not always the most sort of artistic and worthwhile stuff. So... I feel like we're suffering from this misapprehension that everything transmedia is marketing stuff, and that's that's not the case. Because I've also seen amazing projects done for uh, for NGOs, for for human rights issues, for education, um, with those according fundraising models, um, you know, getting grants. Uh, that kind of thing. Straight up arts grants in some cases, although art, art grant money is really, really hard because they don't assume that you're going to pay yourself a living wage. They assume you'll volunteer your labor and you have to account for every cent of, of money you spend. Uh, so it, it's by no means easy money. And then I, I actually think that Kickstarter has, has a lot of really interesting potential. Um, some great projects have come out of it. Some of the most ambitious transmedia projects I've seen haven't funded, unfortunately. There's an interesting thing in Kickstarter where if you can't fund, it may mean that nobody wants the thing that you're trying to make, a sort of an early warning system. And perhaps you should go back and think about how to make the thing that you're making more awesome before you make it. And then there's there's sort of the, the straight up getting money from your audience stuff where you can sell merchandise like the, the webcomic model or even subscription fees. Uh, I, I really, really, truly believe that we could support uh, a pretty great industry of transmedia style experiences where people pay uh, a, a modest subscription fee in order to have however many you know hours of experience over the course of a, a week um, or even over the course of an afternoon uh, and unfortunately most of the early games were completely free and that set an expectation that this kind of experience would always be free. And so people are reluctant to even try to charge. The sort of first experiences most people had with transmedia, like the I Love Bees campaign, I think that was that was promoting Halo. It was part of that marketing push mm -hmm. that you were talking about. Um, I mean, the, the first sort of alternate reality game, of course, was for AI, artificial intelligence, and it was called The Beast, and it was amazing and incredible and completely free, but somebody was paying for it, and that somebody was Microsoft and Warner Brothers. So what what got you into transmedia? What, like, how did that happen? I was actually a player for that game I, I was just talking about, the, the AI game. Um, <laughs> I, I was hanging around work one day, and a friend of mine on, on IRC, old-timey chat, sent me a link to uh, a website that was 
a hate speech against robots, basically. It was the anti-robot militia. And we're like, what? What is this? This is so weird. And then we started finding other websites associated with it. Uh, and then my friend found this group of people called the Cloud Makers, who had figured out a bunch of things we hadn't figured out yet. That, that this was part of a whole connected footprint of websites and email addresses. And there was a murder that was trying to be solved. Uh, and I, I joined that community and kind of never looked back. It was It was a such an amazing, intense experience that at the end of it, I wanted to do something like that again. And the only way to do something like that was really to make it yourself. So the irony is that I haven't actually played anything uh, to such an intense level ever since. I just started making them instead. Uh, but that actually winds up being just as fun and in some ways even more fun. I, I, I know one of the large projects that you worked on, I think, over the past several years was uh, Perplex City, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. now, can you tell us a little about that project, what what, what it was? Uh, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful project. It was critically acclaimed. Um, and the sort of conceit there was that the, there's this alternate universe, a place called Perplexity, and they had lost uh, an item of tremendous value to them. It had been stolen and concealed somewhere on Earth, and they knew that, but they didn't know how to get the object back. And they were a society that values intellect and puzzling, a sort of playful society. So their idea was that they would make puzzle cards to to pique the interest of the people of Earth and get them interested in finding their missing cube to get it back. Uh, and while that sounds sort of sort of whimsical and lighthearted, it was actually a, a really kind of dark story in places with you know, serial killers and murder. But what we did was we had these puzzle cards that we sold in stores, and that was the, the sort of revenue stream. But the, the bulk of it were these websites, these blogs, there was a newspaper that updated three times a week for two years. And we created Perplexity Online as a place that actually existed. Uh, it turned into a living, breathing world. Uh, and it continued that way, essentially, until someone found the cube. And then, you know, they sort of severed the connection from Earth and, and sat back and, and the game was over. One, one of the interesting things about this is, like, with, with all these different facets and, you know, all these different places where this stuff lives and, and, and goes out, I mean, there's always a risk that, you know, any, any given person who's playing this or, or participating in it is only really going to see, you know, uh, one slice of that. Is that part of the magic of it, I guess? You know, it, it used to be considered part of the magic. There there was a, a lionizing of organic discovery in the early phases of the industry. This idea that people cherished an experience more if they stumbled on it and and there was nothing signaling that it was that it was fictional. But in practice, the the kind of people who want that organic discovery and will also notice that kind of organic discovery are very small. So in in more recent days, more recent years, I should say, we've taken to making ways to shepherd people through these sites explicitly. And I mean, setting up a website where you list all of the Twitter accounts that everybody in, in, in your character roster has, has set up, where you actually link all of the websites that are that are mentioned in game, where you run recaps saying what's happened in the story so far, so that if somebody happens to have a really bad week at work, and they can't pay attention, they won't lose the thread and drop out, making it as absolutely simple as possible for someone to get into the experience and then stay in the experience. I think MacHeist.com has, you know, over, I think, several years, they did a really, really discovery-oriented kind of pseudo-alternate reality game, mm -hmm. basically a software bundle giveaway. 
and a lot of that revolved around the entire community coming and, you know, clustering around a bunch of puzzles and trying to, you know, solve them and track down weird clues and stuff like that. They, they do that in a really elegant way, too, because on the one hand, if you're really deeply into it, you can make a contribution by, you know, helping this this sort of collective solving. But on a more casual level, you know, I downloaded the Mac Heist app and I played a bunch of casual mini games and I got a reward for it. And even if I never do anything else, I had that sort of casual participation experience. So uh, I feel like a good designer will typically make something that is accessible to multiple levels of engagement. So if you are really just stopping by and you're not willing to do any work, you can still have a positive interaction with the, with the story. But if you really, really want to dive into it, if you really want to dig and dig and make a contribution, there's also a way for you to do that. I'm intrigued, but also a little intimidated thinking about the planning <laughs> process that got to go into something like that. I mean, what does it look like? I, I, I would imagine it can't be something that's scripted and choreographed from the, from the very beginning. How do you approach the planning process for something like that? I, I mean, typically, typically you start with structure and, and with story, right? Those are the two big problems you have to solve. So on the one hand, you kind of know who your characters are going to be, what your setup is, roughly where you're planning on going with the story. Um, and then you kind of know what platforms you want to use, what resources you have to, to bring to bear, uh, and which you don't. So you you combine those two, and I, I find in writing it's it's actually the the sort of squishy middle that's the hardest of of any part of, of a story to write. It doesn't even matter to, to some extent what that stuff is; just stuff has to happen that logically brings you to the conclusion you have in mind, right? So it's almost easier to write for a transmedia experience. Because you can create a series of problems that need to be solved and then just kind of throw it out there. And the audience are the ones who have to actually get on with solving it. And you don't have to do that part. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like writing your own murder mystery where uh, it's, it's left up to the audience how Miss Marple actually tracks down the clue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, can, uh, I can set up you know, a couple of email addresses and I'll know what happened – uh, and I may have a couple of specific challenges in mind that, let's say, you have to call a restaurant and uh, convince the, the major D there to let a couple have their anniversary dinner there so that the wife doesn't leave the husband, right? You can set up that interaction as a specific point of conflict uh, where the audience is responsible for solving a problem. And then what happens after that may not necessarily have anything to do with the challenge, so if at the restaurant they have an encounter with the man's girlfriend, you know, the marriage will not be saved no matter how hard the audience has been working toward it. And I find this actually makes a, a more interesting emotional dynamic for the audience than otherwise, uh, because it's not just someone else that the story is happening to. It's them, too. Their hard work is going to waste. And I think that was an element of perplexity, too. There was a character that everyone that everyone who was playing was trying to track down. Mm -hmm. And um, that character ended up dying in the game. And it really affected a lot of the audience. It was, you know, they they were emotionally invested in what had happened, what was happening to them. It really did. You're you're talking about Anna Heath, and the the interesting thing about that is that we we had always planned for Anna to die. It was it was in the outline from day one. Anna was going to die. It was necessary as a plot point for other things to happen later on in order for the killer to eventually be exposed, right? Uh, and we hit a point m midway through the game where we realized that we had never really fleshed her out as a character, and we were worried that when she died, nobody would be sad. 
That was our big concern. She would die and no one would miss her. So we, we wound up making a site for her uh, and to making her an interactive character where she hadn't been simply to, to humanize her and make her someone that the audience related to. And then, of course, later she was gruesomely murdered. And the audience wound up feeling personally responsible for it because they had been helping her solve a series of, of mysteries. Oh, and like giving her clues to track down They had and stuff sent like her that. out that night. They were the ones who told her where to go, where she was murdered. It was their fault because they knew it was dangerous and they knew, you know, her twin babies were at home waiting for her and still they sent her out. So they didn't just feel sad. They felt guilty. That's cold. Yeah, it's wonderful. (laughs) No, I mean, and I I think that was a sort of an epiphany for me, a a moment where I realized that the sort of emotional texture that you work with in an interactive story is different from a film. I I know it's not a, a transmedia experience per se, but Dragon Age 2 is a fantastic experiment in this because there's a point in the game where you feel betrayed. It's not, it's not just that you're, you're frustrated by the game. It's not just that you're crying because something sad has happened or laughing because something funny has happened. You feel like someone has stabbed you in the back when you trusted them. I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive Anders again. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, it's just incredible and intense. And when you step back away from the feeling and you realize that that emotion was architected for you very specifically, you could never do that in a book. You could never feel like you were betrayed. And, and sort of coming back a little bit to uh, a comment that you know you made earlier about platforms and like tools to support the process of doing this stuff. Given how varied you know th- these projects can be, do you think it's possible to even build dedicated tools to support this kind of stuff, or is it just a matter of leveraging the resources that are already out there to work with social media and manage blogs? I mean, there there really are a couple of dedicated tools out there. Um, I, I shouldn't talk smack about them. Rides was turning out to be actually a very interesting tool, um, and you may still be able to license it. It, it lets you sort of interact with, with video in real time. Uh, Social Samba is also a really interesting tool that I haven't been able to, to kick the wheels of too much. Um, and it, it provides a sort of storytelling platform in, in Facebook, essentially, where you can create the, the, the illusion that characters are doing things uh, on Facebook where they, where they might not really be. And then uh, Conductor is a tool that I know is being developed by Robert Pratt, and I'm afraid I don't know much about it, but it's intended specifically to be uh, a transmedia platform for telling immersive and, and social media stories. I imagine at the end of the day, it, it, there's still just manual heavy lifting of building these different touch points. Yeah, I mean, it, it all depends on what you're trying to do. Honestly, if you're trying to get 2 million people invested in a film, what you're going to need to do to achieve that goal is going to be substantially different from what you're going to need to do if you want to provide, let's say, a three-week fun experience for 300 subscribers. Before we finish up, can, can you tell us a, a little bit more about uh, the, the Lucy Smokehart project <laughs> was mentioned earlier? Uh, my, my Kickstarter project, it was The Daring Adventures of Captain Lucy Smokehart, uh, my, my sort of pirate serial fiction ebook and puzzle hunt project. Uh, that's really clunky. I've got to work on that. I have a sort of an ongoing tension where I really love the marketing work that I do, but I live in terror that one day the marketing people won't call me anymore and I'll be poor forever. So 
Uh, so I've been thinking a lot lately about how do I develop sort of my own stories with just the the pocket lint that I have to throw at the problem? How do I how do I make stuff on my own and still make it fun and, you know, maybe a little bit immersive, maybe a little bit transmedia, but not too much because I don't have a team to throw at it. I just have me and I'm busy doing a lot of other stuff. So I, I decided I would try and, and make some sort of serial project on Kickstarter. I literally sat down and made a list of things that are awesome to try and figure out what it would be about. Uh, and, and the thing that I decided was the most awesome at the moment was pirates. And it, it just sort of evolved from there. Like the carnivorous mermaids, the, the latest episode has socialist lizard people in it. Makes sense to me. Well, and it's interesting because I come at this from a sort of feminist, anti-racist, anti-colonialist point of view. So I, I wind up taking tropes like, you know, the the sexy, alluring mermaid and trying to find a way to, to turn that around. So I have like really deadly, sharp-toothed, dangerous mermaids that you know, you really aren't going to see pining after any princes anytime soon. I felt the simplest way to accomplish something was was just to, to you know make short little ebooks and sell them, and then put a puzzle in each one. If you solve the puzzle on the website, you can get uh, a page of Lucy's brother's journal that explains what happened to him and why he's missing and why she's looking for him. So, is is that something that people can like get in on now, even if they weren't in the Kickstarter? Oh, absolutely, I totally selling the ebooks. If you just go to lucysmokeheart.com, uh, there are a wide variety of buying options. Uh, if you want to hold your horses until October 15, I'll have the episode up, uh, the first episode up for free. Uh, if you email me and ask nicely, I'll probably send you the first episode for free even now. Um, but each episode is, is 99 cents on Amazon. They're, you know, 20, 30 pages long. So for anybody who's interested either in starting to explore this stuff or, or, you know, organizations who are interested in, you know, looking at it as a way of, you know, marketing their projects or, or even communicating, you know, interesting messages that they, that they want to get out. Like you mentioned, you know, NGOs mm -hmm. and educational institutions, you know, what, what do you think good next steps would be? I mean, obviously buy your book. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, I would never have thought to say that. Um, I think that the first step is to look around and see what's been done and what has worked and what hasn't worked. Uh, a lot of people come into Transmedia and, and wind up having to invent everything out of whole cloth because they simply aren't aware of prior art. Uh, but, but once you start looking, there is an incredible body of prior art that you can learn from. So that's the sort of step one. And then step two is to take stock of what you have and then just start trying things. A lot of, a lot of projects fester in, in planning phases and never ever go anywhere because the, the people creating them are afraid to pull the trigger to commit and actually try something and you never get anywhere anywhere at all unless you actually start making there's always your first crappy project that you have to make and you will learn so much from it but you will never learn those things until you do the project ain't that the truth with everything mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I know you're you're heading off to uh, Worldcon pretty shortly, and I really appreciate you know that you, that you were willing to take the time out. Hope to talk to you again, and, and best of luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. 